We know that many of our readers like to share their copy of the Church Times with others. That may not be possible at the moment. As an alternative, we're offering a short-term discounted subscription, just £1 a week for 10 weeks. That includes UK delivery and there's no obligation to renew. You can purchase the subscription for yourself or as a gift for someone else. You'd enjoy all of our usual subscriber benefits, the paper in the post each week, all the news at churchtimes.co.uk, access to the digital archive, the app for iPhone and iPad, and listening to this podcast. To purchase a subscription, go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash 10 hyphen weeks. Thank you. Welcome, everybody. Um, first thing I want to say is what a fantastic book this is. So if you don't already have it... Um, then, then do purchase it. And I suspect that Hannah will also be available to sign books, although she probably hates doing that, because authors always do. But um, So it's a um, fantastic theme we're going to explore today. Who does not have their own food story um, of either gender, but particularly um, women, I'm guessing. So Hannah's going to um, introduce herself and introduce her work for 10 or 15 minutes, and then we will have a conversation. And the way in which we have a conversation, I will explain at that point. Um, I'm Alison Webster. I work within this diocese, in the Diocese of Oxford, um, on issues of social justice and have done that for many years. Um, But I also have a long-standing interest in all issues to do with theology, social justice, identity, marginalisation, and many of the themes that, that, are, that are covered here. So it's great to have the opportunity to talk to Hannah about her book and it will be really great to hear your perspectives and um, the, the experiences that you're bringing to this session as well. So Hannah, over to you. I'll speak from here and then I'll kind of go back over there so I hope that's okay with everybody. I'll take this off while it's going to clunk all the way through I think. So uh, my name's Hannah Bacon, I'm Associate Professor in Feminist Theology from the University of Chester, um, which is actually closer to Bloxham than you actually think. I thought it would take absolutely ages to get here, but it didn't, we just flew in the car. Well, can you fly in a car? I don't know, mixed metaphor. Anyway, I'll speak for 10 to 15 minutes about the book. Um, What I really want to do is just kind of introduce some of the key themes tell you a little bit about what the book is about and then after that just give you a little bit of a flavour, a taste, lots of food metaphors here, but of of the book and of the kind of argument that I'm trying to forward in it. So something to start with about, about the context of the book. So I am a Christian feminist who has become more and more interested in theological constructions of the body, especially how women's bodies have been theologically approached. When I finished my last book, which was on the Trinity, I was beginning to feel a little bit like I'd spent quite a lot of time up in my head, pondering the finer workings of the divine being, that it was time to return to a much more embodied theological focus. I'd started engaging with body theologies and had always had an interest in cultural discourses about weight and size. And I think Alison and I will probably explore where that probably comes from. But size and weight have as a matter of fact, always been issues within my family, as well as other families, I expect, in in the room as well. Growing up, I've always been conscious of how my body fits with my 
siblings' bodies. I've got two sisters. One is my twin sister, and another is an older sister. And within that kind of setting, I've always been aware that my body is bigger than my twin's body and bigger than my other sibling's body. So as a, as a three, my body is, is the largest. And I've always been aware of that in our family. And of course, it's also hard to go a day, isn't it, without being confronted with cultural discourses about food and in particular cultural discourses about fat. Every morning we're kind of hit between the eyes, really, with anti-fat messages. Fat is obviously bad for us. Fat is a drain on the NHS. Fat is a drain on our economic health. That's an obvious truth, and if we question it, we're silly. Or are we? My research in body theology took me to feminist work on weight, to Susie Orbach, who famously announced that fat was a feminist issue, and to more contemporary work by the likes of Samantha Murray and Susan Bordeaux, and particularly to literature on Christian dieting in the US by scholars like Mary Griffiths and Lynn Gerber. I was fascinated by the way secular ideals about the body beautiful were being packaged for evangelical Protestant consumers. And then I came across the secular weight loss group, The Organisation, which is at the heart of my book. It spoke of sin and met frequently in churches. I wanted to see what theological meanings, if any, were being recycled and to what end. So I joined a regional group and participated and spent a year inside the group observing the weekly classes talking informally to members and to the leader, interviewing 13 members, which was actually most of the group. The book is mostly about women, and that's partly because women were the main people who attended the group. There was one man, who, we, who I call Mark, but he wonders if women feel a bit intimidated by him because he is the only man. If I was to describe the contribution of the book, I think I'd have to say that it's the first of its kind, to date, it's the only feminist theological work on weight which is rooted in qualitative research, in talking to real women about their weight loss journeys. It's the only feminist theological work that engages with the critical discipline of fat studies, which is a kind of sociological, cultural, academic discourse which assumes that doesn't start off from the point that assumes fat is bad. It questions that discourse, and my work was engaging with that. It pays attention, my book, to the complexities and to the amb ambiguities of slimming culture. Unlike other feminist theological discussion of size, it uses my ethnographic insights as the basis for making theological arguments about sin and about salvation. So the book, if you're interested, travels in two directions. The first direction is that it unearths how Christian ideas about sin and salvation, how they resurface in secular weight loss contexts, in the particular group that I attend, and how those discourses feed the cultural war on fat. That's the first thing that the book does. The second thing that it does is that it offers these theological tropes of sin and salvation back to popular debate about fat and back to Christian speech but it insists that they can be usefully employed to speak theologically about weight in a world which is obsessed with thinness, but only if they are informed by the real lives of women who have experienced slimming. So that kind of gives you a, kind of a, a flavour of the, the book and the directions that it kind of travels. Now to give you just a bit of a flavour of the content and the argument that's being made, perhaps. 
So the Slimming Company at the centre of this book explicitly adopts the nomenclature of sin to speak about food. Sin forms part of the specialised language and knowledge that members are expected to learn and accurately reproduce. The weight loss guide members receive when they join makes clear that sin stands for synergy, communicating that the three food groups of healthy extras, free foods and sin, they all work together to optimise weight loss. Interestingly, the spelling of sin has undergone careful modification. From the organisation's inception in, 19, in the 1960s to about 2004, it adopted the conventional Christian spelling, S-I-N, albeit without making reference to its religious foundations. But disgruntlement from members around the terms guilt-inducing capacity appears to have provoked the company to change tack. In the early 2000s, the organisation modified the spelling of SYN to S-Y-N to try and market synergy as a more scientific concept. Synergy spoke about nutritional balance and required members to limit consumption of saturated fats, alcohol and sugar, while eating at least five portions of fruit and veg a day and a mixture of carbohydrates and lean proteins. Sin, though, typically depicts foods like chocolate, crisps, alcohol, the kind of things that most of us like to eat quite a lot of or drink quite a lot of, foods that are high in saturated fats and sugar. Foods are allocated a sin value, and these values appear as a 15-page section of the weight loss book that you receive if you join this weight loss group. And interestingly, sin values change quite regularly, and often, well, all the time, members aren't informed about why they're changing or how they're changing. They just have changed. And given this, sin often kind of induces in members quite a significant amount of angst, anxiety. Members will use the sin calculator, which is on the website, or call the sins hotline if they feel that they need to check uh, what the value of certain things is when they're out and about. The meanings members and the leader ascribe to sin recycle layers of normative Christian discourse. The dominant position held in the group is that sin is unsafe and gets you into trouble. It creeps and trips you up, causing you to slip, slide, fall downwards, backwards, off the wagon. Sin excites desire and tricks you with its allure, because what appears to be sin-free can actually turn out to be dangerous. So vigilance is crucial. It's actually, it's, it's probably worth saying that in one of the first meetings that I attended, the, the leader recounted a time when she handed out fake eyeballs to the, the, the members in the group to put in their lunchboxes, because that's the kind of vigilance which is crucial. It's a kind of all-seeing eye, so <laughs> you open your lunchbox and they've got the eye of the leader kind of watching you. About, uh, I don't think we were meant to eat the eyeball, but anyway... So sin hides in unsuspecting places, we're told. So in, in, in one meeting, we're told that sin hides in things like salad dressings, in the bits at the bottom of cereal packets, those kind of bits at the bottom of the Weetabix packet that we might just kind of get with the bag. Um, th that's also dodgy because sin hides in those unsuspecting places. We think it's harmful, but in fact, it's deeply dangerous. 
So by identifying sin, I argue, with a slip or a slide downwards, backwards, members reproduce the ancient theological principle of the fall that aligns eating, and Eve's eating in particular, with moral decline and a lapse into an unintended state of moral disorder. For women in the group, like the Christian interpretation of Genesis, sin enters their world through food. It causes the rational will to be overtaken by irrational desire for pleasure. So, just like Augustine, following Paul in the New Testament, is infuriated by his inability to do the good that he knows by reason, so Joy, in my group, feels fed up, she says, with herself when she gains weight, because she knows in her heart of hearts that she could do it, but she's just getting too relaxed. If Augustine stressed the need for the rational will to assert itself over the appetitive self, so women in the group that I attend contend that they must engage the power of the will to beat fat and the unruly appetite that it exposes. In consort with theological tradition, then, sin continues its association with a defective will and is identified with a number of related concepts with death, disease, guilt, shame. And by repeating these well-worn associations, all of which we must say are gendered through association with women and femininity, the organisation and its members confirm that fat, and women's fat especially, is flawed and is in need of urgent repair and confession. It's a bleak story, you might say, but sin talk is not simply negative. It doesn't just function negatively in the group. The organisation uses the term to express what Kate Kairos and Jose Johnston term as a do-diet stance, a discourse that reframes restriction as freedom and represents healthy eating as a win-win choice that need not sacrifice pleasure. So despite the negative meanings that the leader ascribes to sin, sin is actually officially promoted in positive terms by the weight loss organisation. It's permitted and it's embraced. Louise, the leader, tells us that we can use our sin, that we should welcome our sin, that we should make the best of it. We have between 5 and 15 sins a day that we are entitled to and we should spend them wisely. The positive, this positive framing of sin ensures that sin is not over-conditioned then by a Christian logic. It also provides important opportunities for women to manage their own bodies and organise their own lives. Women become experts at calibrating sin, of spending sin wisely, of saving it up and spending it in the right ways at the right times. Women do this in multiple ways. They, they may use the food diary, they may use mental methods to record their own sins in their minds and other tools. Women police sin, but they do so skillfully. Many women delight in the opportunities that watching sin, policing sin, actually affords them. I just enjoy doing it, says Jane to me. It makes you feel more in control of your own life, says Havala. Tracy tells me that she enjoys reflecting on sin in the group because it gives her an opportunity to take time for herself and to have a break from her usual routine of caring for her young son. It gives her a break, she says, from the bath time. I suggest that these enabling dimensions of sin resonate with some of the enabling dimensions of Christian asceticism. A feminist theologian called Margaret Miles identifies that learning self-knowledge and the reversal of instinctual impulses, they're all part of the centre of the ascetic life, she says. And food restraint, along with other ascetic practices, were one way to reorient the self so it was free to receive God. 
Slimming provides similar opportunities, I suggest in this book, for women to challenge well-established routines, to think differently, to become conscious of themselves in new ways and to switch to more intentional food ways. In the limited work that exists in feminist theology on fat and dieting, emphasis is often drawn to examples of self-starvation among women mystics in the medieval period. To women like Catherine of Siena, who died at the age of 33 because she starved herself literally to death. And feminist theologians like Mary Daly, some of us will have heard of, have condemned asceticism as a form of sadomasochistic behaviour because it glorifies self-defiling acts, she says. It encourages hatred of the female body. But what this misses, in my opinion, is the way that ascetic practices were intended to encourage the self to become more conscious of its own impulses, of its own behaviours, and to challenge socialised and habituated acts. Women use food in the medieval period to shape their own worlds. Through their foodways, women like Catherine of Siena crafted teaching and leadership roles for themselves, which often rubbed against dominant ecclesial authority, claiming direct access to God and using their abstinence to avoid marriage and escape the dangers of childbirth. In a partly continuous way, slimming also provides opportunities for women to produce their own subjectivity. Women use food to organise their everyday lives, to challenge habituated attitudes and behaviours and to make autonomous choices that sometimes allow them actually to play with established norms. Some women in the group practice kind of the permission that sin allows them. So if you're allowed to have five to 15 sins a day, some women will go, brilliant, you know, this is great. What I'll do, though, is that I'll, uh, I'll just tweak this particular rule here about how much milk I'm allowed. I'll just tweak this particular rule here about how much this I'm allowed. And they start to embrace the permission of sin, which the, the weight loss company promotes, but they do it in ways which the, the, the company would absolutely not agree with. And that's quite interesting, I think. So because the terminology of sin reproduces common negative theological meanings, weight loss emerges, I argue, in members' narratives as salvific. So if the problem is fat, and fat is a visible confession of sin, then the only solution in the face of fat is to get rid of it, to eradicate the horrible weight that Jane tells me in her interview that makes her feel grotesque. Getting rid is a common refrain spoken by women in the group that I attend, we need to get rid. I've got to get rid of fat. I've got to get rid of the weight. Although repeating the dominant soteriological, which is a kind of met, uh, an idea about salvation, although repeating this kind of idea about salvation as sacrifice, it also repeats Christian associations between salvation and healing, conversion, rebirth, resurrection, escape, and rescue from danger. These ancient theological ideas resurface in the group and serve to confirm that fat constitutes an unlivable life and cannot stay. Fat must be beaten, buried, and deleted. No more clearly is this message communicated than by the image of the male and female dancer that appears on some slips of paper that Louise, the leader, hands round in one meeting. The woman's body has been divided into 14 parts. The leader's literally drawn a grid on, on, on the woman in the, in the partnership. So the woman's body's been divided into 14 parts to reflect 14 pounds that make up a stone in weight. It's a competition, we're told. 
and the task is to shade in a section for every pound that we lose. The winner is the woman who completely shades herself out and, and successfully completes the work of taking her body entirely apart, one pound at a time. And through this exercise, others and women learn in a manner reflective of aspects of New Testament theology that salvation is a means of losing to gain. Women must get rid of the excess bits of their bodies if they are to save themselves, and suffering, although inevitable, will ultimately lead to redemption. Members also speak, interestingly, about getting there, about arriving at a final point of fulfilment when the body will be as it should be, changed, transformed, and thin. If for early Christians, Jesus' healing ministry prefigured the saved state of eternal life with God in heaven, confirming that the resurrected body would be healed of its former abnormalities, so salvation emerges in the weight loss group as a type of resurrection. Women imagine being freed from the visible marks of sin in a life after fat, beyond the here and now. And while this encourages women to seek flight from their now bodies and to wage war against their present flesh, it also facilitates meaningful social bonds. Women unite around a common goal and generate networks of support that contrast with the loneliness and isolation of home. Some women attend for others and not just for themselves, to offer advice and to try and be a support for those they care about. Confession and sacrifice are set then within a community that enables some women to come out of hiding and to practice their body's legitimacy in ways that are not just self-referential. They make time and space for one another, share different forms of capital and validate their own and other women's worth. This endorsement of community and friendship repeats to a point certain Christian ideas about what it means to be the church. A community of disparate people united by hope and trust, sharing a common life and purpose. A community of resident aliens on pilgrimage to heaven. Of course, women in this group are not on pilgrimage to heaven. They are, though, a community on the move and in transit. They are a group of people who are on their way, but who have not yet arrived. And just as the Eucharist allows pilgrims to eat the hope that they hold, so in the group... Women partake of the food tasters that showcase the plan in the hope that eventually the knowledge they symbolise will transform them. I don't have that much time to say much more about the rest of the book, but what the remainder of the book seeks to do is to take insights, clues, if you like, from the ethnography and use these insights and clues from the ethnography to rework a theology of sin and salvation, and, a, and to provide a theology of sin and salvation which will actually be nourishing to women's bodies and lives and not harmful. The emphasis women place, I say, on pride, on community, social bonds, on valuing and summoning the, the power that the body holds, on valuing the mouth in particular the, and, 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 and what goes into the mouth and how that can actually reform and shape women's lives. All of these things, I say, are, are, are things that we should actually think about trying to salvage and recover from weight loss culture and feed into a theology of sin and salvation. They're helpful things and they're good things that weight loss communities actually do. The, the challenge is to try and kind of uncouple them really from, from the, 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 the disciplinary pursuit of weight loss itself. So 
Just to end, sizeism, the victimization of food, and the divided self are three ways in which I speak about sin in this book. Sizeism, the victimization of food, and the divided self. These forms of sin, I say, speak meaningfully about some of the distortions which are worn on women's bodies in particular, which must be resisted. In critical dialogue with a feminist theologian called Rosemary Radford Ruther, I argue that sin gives expression to a number of distorted ways of relating to food, fat, and the body self. It not only pronounces a negative judgment that such relations violate God's intentions, but also performs a positive function orienting us towards the cultivation of hope. These sins, I argue, can be resisted through micro-practices of salvation and through more, more corporate liturgical practices, through individual acts of revolution and communal acts of resistance. Salvation, I argue, is the meaningful work of reconciliation, a praxis that emerges from a, re from a refusal to let the sins of sizeism, the victimization of food and the divided self have the last word. It is imagined in this book as the alimentary practice of sensible eating, a mode of eating that reconnects food with feeling, pleasure, sensuality and passion, and as a living out of the Sabbath repose an individual and communal practice of rest from the frenetic, sacrificial work of burning fat and a practice of delight in fat embodiment. In the end, I offer the book as food and nourishment to women and others who resonate with the stories I tell in the hope that the present atmosphere of fat hatred can be changed and women in particular may know greater fullness of life now without waiting for a better body and a better world to come. Sorry if that was too long. Or... No, not at all. <laughs> um, you'll have gathered that this book covers uh, um, a huge, a huge amount of ground, and um, I would love us to have a conversation um, about some of the things that, that Hannah has um, has introduced. In other words, we're not restricting this to a question, a question and answer. If you, you if you've come with particular experiences that you'd like to share. Um, that you may not want uh, commenting on, that's, that's absolutely fine. So, so in a moment, I will, um, I will open the conversation up. But um, there are a couple of things I wanted to just explore in a bit more detail, Hannah, <laughs> if that's all right. You talked a bit about your, your kind of family background as a, as a motivation for, for, for engaging in this research in the first place. Clearly, this is embodied theology of a, a very literal kind and um, I would say quite an unusual kind so I'm wondering what what drove you to that <laughs> is it just something you felt you you couldn't do this research in any other way other than joining a group um, do you think you would have joined a group anyway or is it something that might have been completely uh, foreign to you and further to that do you think some of the things you're saying about women's agency the agency of the women within the groups and some of the positive things that, that they were gaining from it. That, do you think you'd have discovered that if you'd just done this as an intellectual research exercise? I'll start with the third one, I think the, the last point first. Um, when I started this research, 
I'd kind of done the good thing that all good researchers do, which is basically get particularly terrified about doing the research and then try and immerse yourself within loads and loads of literature to try and kind of convince yourself that you're on the right track. And when I was reading feminist work on bodies and on weight, one of the things that I was coming across time and time again was this idea that women who diet are somehow being tricked into a... Uh, a kind of myth that in the end they if they lose weight their lives will be better that they'll be fulfilled that everything will be okay and therefore what we actually need to do is to almost re-educate women so that they realize that they are being duped by this false consciousness if we if we want to call it that um and i kind of wasn't too sure about that when I when I started my research and one of the things that I learned because when I as a participant in the group was that actually that was completely wrong that actually you know women are not stupid <laughs> they which is what the feminist discourse that I had kind of internalized really was saying you know that that you know, me, educated feminist theorist up here with no experience of being inside a weight loss group, will tell you, woman involved in a weight loss group, that all you need to do is understand that you're being kind of tricked by this message of freedom and, uh, you know, uh, fulfillment. And if you read my book on it, then you'll suddenly realise that you're being, you know, tricked in, in, into this. And that's not what I experienced. What I experienced was that women are critical of fat phobia within society. They're critical of the, the kind of consumerist financial agendas which are being served by the group that they're in and the programme that they're paying for. Um, they're critical of the leader to a certain extent. You know, they do brilliant impressions of her in their interviews with me because... <laughs> because they know that she, you know, she comes out with some really weird stuff and they think, wow, you know, really? That's, that's not why I've put on weight, but thanks for saying that it is. Um, yeah, that they, that they're not convinced by any of this because they're thinking intelligent people. And then the question is, well, why do they go? And they go because they experience agency, because they experience that they, through the programme, can actually start to take back control, sorry, of... Um, <laughs> So it's the Boris Johnson in me, I can't just comes out. <laughs> um, but they, they, you know, they, they understand that um, you know, following the programme actually gives them opportunities to act, to take control of their own lives, of the food that they eat. And food becomes a device that helps them to organise their surroundings in a new way. And kind of having control over their own surroundings and of their environments and getting out of the house to socialise with other women... You know, one woman tells me that she lives in a male-dominated house and that coming to the group every Tuesday night is, has been absolutely brilliant for her because she's managed to get away from that, that kind of male-dominated culture and make friends with other women. And this is kind of the first opportunity that she's experienced that. So there are these really kind of life-full, enabling um, kind of features of weight loss, which I wasn't counting on their being, which completely jarred with the, the reading that I'd done before, before uh, joining the group. In terms of, you know, why I uh, decided to do this in the first place, I mean, I said at the beginning of the, of, of the piece then that, you know, I'd been doing some research before that on the Trinity, and if anybody's ever tried to preach on the Trinity or even kind of research into it, you quickly kind of start to have, like, a mental breakdown about the whole thing. <laughs> Um, and I did that for about three years. So you can imagine the kind of trauma that 
<laughs> ensued at the end of my, my PhD. Now, I mean, I, I kind of wanted to get away from the more abstract kind of way of doing theology. I was kind of had enough of it, really. And even though my, my first book on the Trinity was trying to do some of that kind of pulling down of the Trinity to the ground, if you like, and to try and connect it with real people's lives, I was really ready for something which was far more fleshy and far more embodied. And because I'd always been kind of interested in messages about weight, mainly because of kind of messages which I'd been kind of grown up uh, with, I suppose, and socialised into. Um, it just seemed like a, 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 a likely thing for, for me to kind of investigate, really, I suppose. Brilliant, thank you. Um, before I open it up, I just must ask you about um, two things that were new to me. Um, one was the conservative evangelical, <laughs> you, you alluded to it at, at, at the beginning, but um, I had no idea there were multi-million dollar industries called things like weight down ministries and phrases like slim for him and what would Jesus eat and so that that's one thing and and what I really like about how you interrogate that is that you're you're drawing attention to the fact that it's it's the slim white female body so it's not so and and I'm assuming also that in your in your group, I was going to ask you, and I'm guessing that it's a, demo, a mixed demographic in those groups. So you've got that sort of element of, um, of, of, of class and race and, and all of that stuff, as well as what you alluded to in the one man, the gender issues. But, so that's one thing. <laughs> it's, I suppose the question is, is that just an extreme form of what we see um, in terms of more mainstream theology, where mainstream theology is just taking on unwittingly the, the values of, of the society around us, or is it something different? The other thing is just fat studies. I'm f fascinated there's a fat studies and that there's, doesn't surprise me there's little theological engagement with that because, you know, cultural studies, queer studies, you know, yeah. theology joins in 20 or 30 years yeah, after say, it, it gets years. going. So, <laughs> so just, just those two things, really, um, whether you want to say a bit more about either or both. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so there is this uh, really interesting phenomenon in the US, um, Christian faith-based dieting, and it is a, a really lucrative uh, business, and it's this kind of marrying together of faith with fighting fat, um, and many women and also men sign up for kind of weight loss programs which are faith-based, which are Christian-centred. Um, and the, the kind of message behind most of those is that if you are big, uh, then that kind of exposes something which is wrong with your walk with God, quote-unquote, um, and therefore that there's a spiritual problem, disease even, which needs to be cured and fixed, and the way that we do that is through weight loss, but it's the, the way that you lose weight is by joining up and signing up to programs which are framed in a kind of ministerial, pastoral kind of way, so they're there to help, and they're quite prayerful, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the, the main kind of point at the end of it is that you lose weight, and you do so because it's right, and God wants you to change, and it's possible to change, and uh, it, 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 it will make you, as God wants you to be, thin. Um, because thin equals kind of faithful d disciple uh, on track with God, Etc. Etc. So it is a really interesting phenomena. It's 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 a phenomena which is uh, really popular at the moment within Protestant evangelical uh, conservative um, uh, factions of of the church in the U.S. 
Uh, and I think it's because of that evangelical kind of route which you get this kind of co-opting of cultural ideas and then slapping on the kind of Christian label because y you take the, those bits out of society and then you give it a Christian kind of edge. It's worked very well insofar as, you know, it's, it's made a lot of money. And Gwen Shamelin, who is one of the, the biggest, if not the biggest, kind of faith-based guru in the United States, you can Google her if you want, that's quite interesting. Lots of YouTube clips on her. Um, you know, famous for saying that um, salvation does not go down into the pig pen, therefore fat people are not saved. So lots of connections there between fat and pigs and eating and a lack of salvation. And therefore, given that fat people don't go to heaven, her ministry is obviously earning her quite a lot of money because lots of fat people are terrified that they're going to hell. So that's that. Um, and there's loads and loads of literature on faith-based dieting insofar as, you know, if you, if you want to follow a faith-based diet, then you can kind of get hold of lots of stuff online. I'm not advocating it, <laughs> sorry. That wasn't a promotion of that at all. Um, in terms of <laughs> the group, you said you assume that there's a mix of class and, yes, um, there isn't a mix. <laughs> I don't know whether that's because of where I was doing it. So my, my research was conducted in quite a white middle class kind of context and community. So the church where it took place drew that kind of demographic. Um, the mixture of ages actually, which was quite interesting. So um, anything from kind of 16 all the way through to retirement and on. Um, but in terms of class, very middle class, I suppose you have to be because you've got to pay four quid a time. So it's quite ex expensive if you're coming every week. Um, and white. So there was one woman who identified as Middle Eastern. Um, uh, Havala, she's called in the book. And she's the only uh, non-white uh, member in, in the group. Everybody else is white and middle class with nice jobs and... Uh, quite well to do really so it's not particularly diverse as, as a group um, you know the the, the message of, of slimness is is not just a gendered one it, it's also raced and Michelle Lelwicker um, is a is a religious studies scholar and she's done loads of work on kind of the way that slimming has been has been raced and one of the things that she says really interesting is that you know the slender ideal feminine is also f white and she's also quite affluent. So she's white, affluent, able-bodied, as well as being thin. And that message of the ideal feminine, Michelle Elbecker argues, has been kind of transported all across the world. So that even in Nigeria, even, we were talking about this before, you know, um, where there's a different body kind of politic, that norm is being... Uh, uh, transmitted in, in, in other contexts um, and viewed as, as normative, so that although all women are judged on the basis of the European, Eurocentric, white, slender, able-bodied um, ideal, uh, which is obviously deeply colonial. Thank you, that's, that's really helpful. Um, some comments and thoughts, questions? Okay, um, do you need one of these mics to, to rove with? Okay. If, if, if you take that one for now, and then I can... So there's a hand right at the back, just to... to and then one right at the front. <laughs> and, sorry, who was it? Yeah, let's go to do one, two, three. We'll take three at once. <laughs> um, as a confessed person who went to Slimming World last year, um, uh, just a, a couple of things, and then what I really want to say. The, the, idea, the idea of a man being thinking he was putting the women off, and then all the women 
just anyway. Um, Class-wise, the group I went to was working class because that's the environment I live in, but it was not ethnically diverse, which the community is. So, but my, my point was, when I went to the group after, after long ang angst about it, I thought after the first one, church should be like this. Because there was a sense of support, there was, if somebody had, done, had a bad week, it wasn't about focusing on the bad week, it was about focusing on the future. It was, oh, I'm, I've got a wedding coming up, anybody got an idea? I'm gonna... It was fantastic. And after the first, first week, I thought, this is what we should be like on a Sunday morning, this is. You can go in and say, I'm having a real trouble with whatever, any ideas. I, you know, so I, I thought, I, th I was completely surprised by it in a very pleasant way. Thank you. That, that's really interesting. Um, here, and then the lady at the front. Uh, if, you, if you want to say your name, that will maybe help in terms of personalising the conversation. No, no pressure, but um, and maybe where you're from. I'm Mike. I'm a GP in Kent uh, for 30 years. And apologies for coming second as a man. Um, <laughs> I have experience of quite a lot of my patients going to Slimming World, coming from a largely working-class population, um, slightly more of those than the more affluent ones in attending these groups in the area I come from. I agree very much with the first um, questioner about um, people get something from it that should be the level of sharing that we get in a church set up. But my general impression from the talk was this is cultish. This is sort of making people dependent. It's giving them to some extent what they need, but it's making them dependent on the system and the escape, they can't escape because they lose the fellowship and the commonality um, when they succeed in losing the weight. So my experience is that people go, go to these groups, they lose half a stone, uh, they leave and they go back again. And, and almost, you know, they're, they're becoming a dependent on, on, on the group, which is not a good thing. It would be good if they were truly empowered uh, and enabled to live life with that, you know, um, fellowship and... Uh, and so on, without being dependent on, on this group, which is extracting money from them. Thank you. That's, that's another really, really important point. And the third one here, storing up lots to say, Hannah. <laughs> uh, I'm Carolyn. Um, and the reason I'm here, I think, is because um, I worked in an office, an open plan office some years ago. Um, mostly ladies, okay, a few men. Um, it was very, very well qualified ladies with very, very good jobs. Um, and I think they talked a lot about food and about losing weight. Nobody was fat. I mean, they were, you know, very slim ladies, really. Um, but they talked about it in a way that I found very surprising. And it's this narrative of sin. I've done this, I've, I've gone, I've, I'm, I'm sinful. I've eaten a cake. And I'm like, you what? <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't ever, until that, in that office, I'd never come across that way of speaking about losing weight and it was like oh it's it's sin I've eaten a cake I'm thinking if you think that's sin you know and it was just it really pulled me up short and I thought they don't think like me you know I, I we're not on the same other page here at all but then hearing you talk obviously that kind of conversation is not as weird as mm. I thought it was it's mm. actually quite normal so that is very interesting to hear you speak like that and, and confirm that conversation that I was hearing is not kind of some way out thing it's mm. actually quite quite regular so mm. that was really interesting thank you yeah, brilliant. Lots to chew on there, Hannah. Ha ha. <laughs> Sorry, I nearly missed that. <laughs> You're really good at this, Alison. <laughs> um, yeah, so the support thing, 
you know, it's, that's another thing that surprised me, actually. So I went in with my... So I'm, I'm not an ethnographer. You've probably picked that up because my first book was on the Trinity and you can't really do ethnography <laughs> on the Trinity. Um, well, I don't think you can, but... Um, so, you know, I was, I was terrified about going into the field, as it were, and kind of joining this, this group. But one of the surprising things uh, that, that I experienced when I was there is, is, is that I actually enjoyed it. So I expected that I'd go and I'd be like, oh, God, how long, I, how long am I going to have to stick this out for? It's a nightmare, you know, it's so disciplinary and oppressive and, oh, you know, it's... And I did feel like that, but I also felt like sometimes I was looking forward to going to the meetings and actually that tension is something that I write about in the book because I really did embody it. It was kind of guttural. I really did feel quite torn between kind of my feminist values and also being part of this group but one of the reasons I enjoyed it was because there is a real sense of community in the group and you know people honestly do care about each other they they offer each other support they share ideas they're really quite generous with one another in the group um, there's there's not really any judgment and you know the, the women in the group told me that as well so there is a genuine network of, 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 of support and uh, kind of collegiality, or whatever we might want to call it, friendship. And quite a lot of literature on, on dieting actually says that women who join these groups make false relationships, false friendships, that, that they're not really invested with anything meaningful. And that's also wrong, in my opinion. It's certainly not what I experienced when I was in the group. So there is that really important bit of slimming culture which we might want to rescue and say, actually, look at that. That's quite good, isn't it? And if you shine that on the church, then what kind of stuff do we do, do, comes up short? And I think that is something that I also want to do in the book as well. But, and there is a but, you know, slimming culture, uh, uh, you know, makes money out of that. And that's what's toxic. So, you know, yes, it keeps women dependent because actually in a lot of women's lives, certainly the ones that I interviewed, they're not getting that friendship sometimes not not in that kind of way from other places so they keep coming back and they keep coming back and they keep paying and you know and then they hear the other messages which is the stuff about cake and sin so yes they get the support but they also get the kind of really um, we, we might say really dangerous messages about food and how food is a mark of sin and how if you eat it then you become sinful and all of that stuff which we might not particularly think is, is good for women. So it's a mixed bag. And because it's a mixed bag, it's quite good at making quite a lot of money, I think. Um, I think Mike, that might deal with Mike's point, perhaps, about, about dependence. Women do leave, just to say. Women do leave and they do come back. So a number of women that I interviewed had left that group before and the weight, the weight had come back on and then they'd returned again to get rid of it, get rid of it, and then they'd kind of leave and then they'd come back because they were in that process of yo-yoing. And that's also very good for business, isn't it? You know, it's good that um, women become dependent on the weight loss group. Uh, you know, I actually found it quite difficult to leave as a researcher. Um, after a year, I, I knew that I'd reached what is often termed in the, in the discipline as saturation point. Uh, which is basically where you've got no new data because every time you go, you're kind of like, yep, seen that, yep, done that, yep, yep, yep. And I reached that point and I just thought, oh, I just don't know how to leave. 
So I had to kind of go and have this really awkward conversation with the leader and just say, oh, I'm not going to be here next week. And she'd be like, why? Because that was always a bit, you can't not come. I said, oh, well, I think I've finished my research and I don't want, don't really need to be here anymore. And, and that was really difficult because I kind of like felt that she was also judging me slightly, but there we are. Thank you. Oh, lots of hands. Can we, um, can we take the people who haven't said anything yet in this section, um, just sort of briefly, because we've uh, the time is 12.16. Um, yes. Right. My name's Irene. Um, like a lot of women, I've had a weight loss journey over the years. I am in a different group, and the focus is entirely on wellness. And the, the approach on food making us feel good. Now, that doesn't negate all the, the other stuff. We, all of us, hang on to this idea of food being good and bad. But the journey <laughs> for me has been much more positive and much more a learning curve about changing my habits on a more permanent basis. Thank you. That's um, that's it. Um, these two, and then Natalie at the front. So, do you want, do you want to? These can you get right? <laughs> Thanks. Either. To, to what extent do you think, um, the, particularly the women's journey, is complicated by um, the use, mostly by mothers, um, of food as a gift of love? Um, I've been widowed, my children have now left home, and I have to say Sunday lunch is the loneliest time in the world to come home from church and eat a boiled egg. Um, all I, I know, and I want to feed people. Not, you know, hugely, but, you know, it, it's part of my way of giving. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for sharing that. Can you pass the microphone to the lady behind you? Thank you. Uh, hi, I'm Pauline. Um, I was really interested in your three, um, the, the sins, the sizes and victimization of food and the divided self. And I was thinking actually of the model of Jesus and, um, as you do, um, <laughs> you know, um, and, uh, and Lisa Isherwood's book, The Fat Jesus. Um, and it really struck me reading that where she says that nowadays there are images of almost Jesus in almost every shape, form and variety but never of a fat Jesus. And, and she wonders how salvific, really, that would be in terms of sizeism. Um, and I just would be really... Because I think the other two things um, are very evident from Jesus' ministry, but the sizeism, and from our current response to it, but the sizeism. Um, so I just would be really interested to hear your comments on that. Thank you. These are really good thoughts. So we just come to the front, and then for the last five minutes, Natalie can respond to everything. And not Natalie. Oh. <laughs> Anna. Sorry, Natalie. Um, I was going to say, um, when you were saying about the, the sort of ambiguous resource that these groups are for women, so they provide this sense of community, but also have this really toxic messaging, like, that just sounds quite a lot like the church. <laughs> You know, like this, that it, of course, the, the church isn't generally about making money, but I just, you know, when I heard it, I was like, mm, that just sounds like, you know, all the kind of problematic theology that comes into church. But what I guess my question was, it, 
in terms of what do you think flourishing for human beings looks like so for the women in your group if you were to say what would you wish for them as like as flourishing and what do you think flourishing looks like for particularly women who are struggling around weight if that makes sense that's fantastic thank you because I was hoping that we would move on to the sensible eating positive stuff wellness so so um five or six, five minutes ish to respond to all of those things but I think there's a sort of general um over you know there's a common theme isn't there so in terms of the flourishing um so the second part of the book, after I've kind of looked at some of the negative stuff, really just try and reconstruct some of the more positive features of weight loss and kind of uh, look at uh, the way that they can inform what we think theologically about sin and salvation. And one of the things that I try to say, which deals with some of the stuff about uh, food that you were saying and, and, and generosity and giving, um, is that actually what, what, what dieting culture strips from us is a love of food because we have to make decisions based on its capability to achieve weight loss. So you have that rather than that, because that's not only being good, but it means that you can have that later. Why do you have that later? Because you're more likely to lose weight if you have it like that, or you don't have that. And then, So all the decisions that you make are always about losing weight, and that rids food of its just general goodness to us. We stop enjoying it, we stop associating it with pleasure. So when I talk about sensible eating in, in the book... Um, it, it, it's both a nod back to dieting culture because women in the group talk about being sensible. And what they mean when they say they're being sensible is that uh, uh, they're not going to have the cheesy sauce on the pasta because that's bad. What they'll do is they'll have something that's plainish when they go out to a restaurant. I don't mean that, but I rescue that language of sensible eating and, and basically say that it's actually about returning to our senses when we eat, starting to enjoy food, to, to physically taste and touch it, to start to understand that food is a gift and it's a gift from God. And it's not just meant for our survival and nourishment. Of course it is that. But it's also meant for our enjoyment. And it's there for us to desire and to, uh, uh, and, and, and to, uh, to love, literally to love, because God gives it out of love. And it tastes nice for a reason. Um, in terms of Jesus uh, and, and the rainbow of Christ, I think, is what Lisa Isherwood talks about in, in her book. Uh, liberation theologians have come up with lots of different ways of understanding and imaging Jesus, but we don't have a fat Jesus. Why is that? And the answer that Lisa Isherwood gives, which is the right answer, in my opinion, is, is because we hate fats. And if we hate fat, then we don't want a fat Jesus, because Jesus, we don't obviously want to hate Jesus. Um, and Jesus is perfect, and uh, fat really is not that. It's the other side of perfection, so absolutely not a fat Jesus. Thank you. <clears throat> so there's a lot going on in terms of why a fat Jesus doesn't exist. If Jesus is fat, then that's quite a revolutionary image of Jesus because it says that fat is not anything. It, all it is is size. And actually, it doesn't, we can't make a moral judgment about it because it doesn't say anything about a person. It need not say anything about a person. So why not have a fat Jesus? Um, if you're fat, you can be healthy. If you're thin, you can be unhealthy. So we need to be careful about the kind of ways that we're, we're stigmatizing bodies. And a fat Jesus is absolutely on the cards and absolutely essential. And let's remember that Jesus gets a reputation in, in the New Testament, doesn't he, for being a drunkard and a glutton. And that doesn't go down very well with uh, those around him. So um, it's not without precedent, perhaps. Um, wellness, 
and uh, food making us feel good. I think I've already said something about, about that. You know, one of the ways that I, I think that we need to think about salvation is that salvation is to do with flourishing, it's to do with wellness. And that's not just about our physical health, it's about our overall health. And crucial to that has to be embracing food as a source of health, of course, definitely, and well-being, but also as a source of pleasure, of goodness, sharing, generosity. You know, food is about giving. When I go home, I mean, this is one of the things that I really struggled with in, in the weight loss group when I was there. Um, when I go home and see my, my parents who live just outside Sheffield in a town called Worksop, we get around the table, my dad gets the wine out, you know, and, and we kind of sit around and my mum's like, what do you want to eat? And it's not because she's a feeder, it's because she knows that food communicates love, and it does. Um, and I absolutely love going home just to sit around the table and share food with my family and have a nice drink and lots of laughter and lots of telling of stories. And... When I joined the weight loss group, I couldn't do that. When I went home, I'd have to say, oh, no, don't feed me that. I can't have that. I've got to have something else. I'll make it. And my mum's like, ugh. You know, um, it, 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 it kind of gets rid of that. And that's another, another thing that we've got to mourn. You know, it's, it's, we, need that kind of, we need that kind of generosity and giving in relation to our food. And, and you can't always get that in a weight loss kind of context. Thank you. We're, we're at the end of our time. Um, I just wanted to, to um, say a huge thank you, Hannah, for a fantastic exploration of what just really crucial ideas at the heart of the culture that we live in and enabling us to be able to critique both our culture but also the theological culture that we are within and, and the, the ambivalence is about how we can challenge and how we need to be challenged. I love those conversations about church should be more like this and church should be less like this. <laughs> um, it did actually make me wonder whether we could, we could appropriate all the weight loss communities that meet in our churches as um, new congregations as we're struggling to, to up those. But anyway, that's a kind of internal point. Um, I love the phrase now bodies um, which is really, and, the, and food ways. And I think you've, you've given us a lot to think about how, how we can develop for each of us as individuals, but also communally um, and, as, and as people of faith, um, new food ways which are, which are liberating. Um, I know our Methodist minister joined the, the weight loss group um, that met at the church. And I don't know how many vicars do that, but it, it seems like that might be quite interesting. Or, or church members generally um, should just kind of experience what what that culture is like and what we might learn from it as you say um as well as um ways in which we might want to challenge it so fantastic thank you so much and thank you all for the really helpful comments and, and interesting thoughts and it's a good time a good thing to go off to at lunchtime isn't it so uh, thank you very much Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.